The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher and president of Thinking Bigger Business Media here in Kansas City. So happy to be with you here with you today. Uh, last week about this time, I attended a small tech conference that was presented by McGladry, and one of the speakers, in fact, the keynote speaker's name was David Smith. He's a futurist and he's a technologist, and he challenged all of us in the room to think about technology in a different way. But first, he kind of set us up. He asked us to define technology, and of course, you know, so many of the people in the room pointed to their smartphones or to the projector that was, you know, showing the the PowerPoint that was going, or they, uh, you know, shouted out laptop. But basically, everybody was talking about technology as though it was a thing, and he he challenged us to think of it in a much broader sense, and that is as applying using technology to apply knowledge to achieve an objective. And when you do that, the potential for using technology to grow your business, to make your business more profitable, increases exponentially. And today, we have two guests. In fact, they're going to be here in Kansas City speaking next week live as well in two different Thinking Bigger Speaker Series events. We have two guests who are going to talk about how to use technology in that way. And our first guest is Jeff Hoffman. He is a co-founder of Priceline.com. He took the company from conception to IPO as well as several other companies he's done that with. But in his case, he didn't just see the Internet as the Internet, you know, technology, okay, the Internet is technology. What do I know about the Internet that can help me build my business? And he was able to leverage the Internet, apply it, his knowledge of it, and create Priceline.com, which brings great travel deals to customers. And so, you know, we, we can see how he did that, and he's going to be talking about that today. And he's currently the... Um, the founder of Color Jar. So we're going to be talking with him in the first part of the show. And in the second part of the show, we're bringing in Heather Lutz. She's the author of Summonomics, which is the uh, book about the essential business roadmap for social media and mobile marketing. And she's going to talk to us about the power of the smartphone, the power of the thumb in commerce today and in growing your business. And so very excited to talk with both of those those people. We're going to get started here with Jeff. And as I mentioned, you know, he's a co-founder founder, a founding member of the executive team for the Priceline.com family of companies. And he's an accomplished entrepreneur. He's founded and launched numerous startups. 
in the Internet technology and entertainment industries. Yes, you heard that right. He's going to talk a little bit about why he took uh, that little segue into entertainment on the interview today. Uh, he's currently a founder and partner in Color Jar, which is a venture accelerator firm that helps entrepreneurs and small business owners launch and grow new business ventures, and he's using technology in many ways to do that. He works as a virtual CEO with those startup companies all over the world, so a virtual CEO, to help turn great ideas into profitable businesses. He also serves as a mentor, whether it's in his role as an entrepreneur in residence at the Advanced Technology Development Center at Georgia Tech, or his role as business coach in the Kauffman Institute Fast Track Entrepreneurs Boot Camp, or as a judge in business plan competitions at MIT, Pepperdine, and the University of Chicago. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award in Entrepreneurship from the National CEO Council in 2010 and was twice named one of the 25 most influential executives in travel and tourism worldwide. And outside of his technology ventures, Hoffman's an independent film producer. He's executive produced successful independent films such as Cabin Fever, and he's also produced concerts and music events with recording artists such as Elton John and Britney Spears. Hoffman was recently elected chairman of the American Association of Adapted Sports Programs, which is a nonprofit organization that brings sports and school sports leagues to disabled children all over the country. So we're very excited to have Jeff here today and to welcome him to the show. Good morning and welcome back to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger. And our guest today is Jeff Hoffman. He's a founding partner of Priceline.com, and he's also a partner and co-founder of Color Jar LLC, as I mentioned earlier in the show, and several other companies in between. And now we're going to hear from Jeff about some of those. We're really excited because Jeff is going to be here in Kansas City not too many days from now. On Wednesday, April the 18th, he's going to be speaking at a luncheon event here in Johnson County at the Community College. And his topic is going to be growing your business in today's changing world. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I've been reading a lot about you, and I've heard a lot about you um, anyway, and you've got quite an entrepreneurial journey. You've been on one. You you continue that. And I'm just curious about what what influenced you. I mean, you got started in college, but did you have family influences, and, and how did all of this come to be? Well, you know, I had a necessity, which is the greatest influencer of all. <laughs> um, I uh, chose a university that I simply could not afford to attend, and my options were give up or find a way, which is pretty much the entrepreneur's creed. Absolutely. So I began my journey because I had to. Okay. And, and what you know, you got started when you were there at Yale. Uh, tell us a little bit about that first venture and uh, where, where your path has taken you since then. Sure. You know, there was a software company, and I knew nothing about software. I had never taken a class. I had never written a line of code. I just was aware that when you looked at the market that there was a good value equation for software, meaning that, I could charge more than it would cost me to do it since I had to hire people to do the work. So I understood that that was a an, an industry with a value proposition, and I went into the software business uh, so that I could fund the education. But I will have to say that the principles I've learned about entrepreneurship and the sort of fundamental blocking and tackling of starting and running a business, uh, you know, I've had businesses in the software industry, in Internet, in uh, uh, hospitality, travel, transportation, then I went into sports and entertainment, music and film, uh, done a lot of work in nonprofit and charity. And the journey has always followed a couple of the same principles, which is really the same disciplines of entrepreneurship 
uh, sprinkled with the same level of passion for what you're doing have I think been the common elements in everything that I've done. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you talked about, you briefly mentioned there, the, the discipline of entrepreneurship because one of the things that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs well, a lot of would-be entrepreneurs say, I'm, I'm so stifled here in, in my corporate job. If I could only, you know, break free and go do my own thing. And that's that's a misconception about entrepreneurship, uh, isn't it? It's very disciplined. Yeah, you know, it's very funny that you say that because that is something that uh, I tell people all the time. I, I speak about entrepreneurship all over the world. And a lot of times people think, boy, I want to be an entrepreneur because it's the wild, wild west. It's the I can sleep in, I can... You know, I don't have to shave. I can work in my pajamas. They have this perception somehow that entrepreneurship is this no rules, do what you want world. And the reality is that the most successful entrepreneurs in the world are absolutely disciplined, work extremely hard, have a focus and a methodology. Uh, So, yes, that is an important misconception to correct that to succeed in an entrepreneur, it's all about best practices and discipline. Absolutely. So you're so well-known for Priceline.com. Everybody knows about Priceline.com. How did the idea for that come about? And also, what made it so successful? Uh, Sure. So it's a couple of things. Uh, Priceline, the the idea was generated, was the brainchild of a guy named Jay Walker at uh, Walker Digital. He's the one that brought all of us that were there at the beginning together. Um, And Jay uh, did a process that I, I try to teach entrepreneurs a lot, which is constantly basically scanning the horizon for converging events, new technologies, new legislation, competitive changes in the landscape. It's constantly looking to see what's changing in the world around you at all times, moving those puzzle pieces around differently on the table and saying, is there something different I can do now that I couldn't do before? So it's it's the exercise of looking constantly at the landscape to see what's changed and where the opportunity is uh, that created the opportunity for Priceline. That's what Jay had a team of people doing at Walker Digital, and we all started at Walker Digital and spun Priceline out of that company. Um, the second question you asked, why was it successful? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that one is, is – there's a lot of reasons, of course, yeah, in being able to launch a company, but I think if I had to pick one, it's value equation. There were so many people early in the Internet industry, and this still applies to your business today, that kind of had a, look, let's just go get the customers. We'll worry about profitability later, and all those companies are dead. Um, What we did was focus on can we launch a business that creates real value in the marketplace so that everybody in the food chain actually benefits from the existence of this business. That's what made Priceline work. Well, and something that you just said actually brings me to my next question. At Color Jar, your current company, you do work with a lot of startups, and I can, you know, being in that space, I can only imagine the number of ideas that you must hear and, and see every week. And based on what you're hearing and seeing, where do you think that we're heading? And this goes back to what you were talking about with always keeping your eyes open and what's converging. And so, what are you seeing now with the startups that you're working with now? Where, where do you think our new, our next frontier is? So well, you know, there are big waves. So one of the things that the Internet did, every business is not an Internet business. However, the Internet influenced every business in the sense that the Internet created the consumer, the buyer-driven economy. We were a seller-driven economy. And what the Internet did was it put the power in the hands of the people. So people started, uh, you know, use the Internet to get smarter, gain education, look at pricing, look at competitive options. And what happened was you used to be able to sell things products and services to people, Mm -hmm. now they buy them. And while that sounds subtle to some people, today's consumers don't want to be sold, they want to buy. 
And I think that where we're headed in this consumer-driven economy is that consumers are driving a lot more of the way you need to design your business. For example, and we see this uh, just very quickly in the whole Occupy Wall Street thing, people trust is a huge issue. Transparency is a huge issue. Whatever business we're launching now, online or offline, consumers are not going to settle for anything less than transparency, trust, direct communications, and access to information. I think it's really changed the landscape dramatically. Now, speaking of entrepreneurs, uh, you divide would-be entrepreneurs into three major buckets, Uh, the ones that you see through your mentoring, inventors, builders, and operators. Talk to us a little bit about what the differences are between those three types, and does one have a better chance of succeeding than any of the others? Uh, Another very good question, because uh, what what we need to do right there is define the the word success. Um, Here's a problem that we have, and it actually really bothers me. When, and I'm talking about the Facebook, Zuckerberg, social network movie problem, which is that people think success is nothing less than becoming a billionaire and famous and having a movie made about you, and that's an absurd notion. Success needs to be defined, and again, I try to counsel you know, entrepreneurs of every age, by the way, for this. Success needs to be you defining what, what it is you're trying to achieve in your life and your, your job, your company is just one of the pieces of that equation, and what actually makes you happy? We, you know, you need to know it when you see it, uh, so you're not perpetually climbing some ladder that never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so the definition of success is a very individualized equation where we all determine this is what would make me happy, and once I get there, I know that I have achieved that success. So that being said, what we discovered is there are people that are happy because they birthed a new idea into the world even though they didn't build it. There are people whose definition of success is, I made that idea into an actual, there's a building full of people working, right? There's an actual company generating revenues doing that, and there's people whose definition of success is, you know, being able to, over a long period of time, keep the company stable and growing and have the same, you know, security and stability they want for their family. So I think there's a path to success in every one of those areas for all of us. Okay, and I think that's very important. In fact, I just wrote a blog about right now there is so much emphasis on the fast-growth startups and how important it is to remember that there are all kinds of organizations and companies uh, that make up, you know, they're the backbone of of a successful economy. And the way that you just described uh, success, I think, feeds right into that. So absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about uh, those student days at Yale and bring it home to some of the students who are going to be out at Johnson County Community College when you're here and also who might be listening to the show today. Um, that's where you got your start as an entrepreneur while you were a student there at Yale, as you say, because you, you had to uh, to help support uh, the tuition and so forth. But it's really not unusual at all these days to hear about college students, even high school students, who are starting businesses while they're still in school. And what I want to know is how important you think it is for these kids to get some experience in other businesses before they head out on their own. And, and if you, they don't, you think that hurts them? Oh, boy, you know, again, an excellent question because here's an important part. Some people make, make the mistake of believing that those businesses necessarily have to work. And, uh-huh. in fact, one of the best experiences you can get for the rest of your life is failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process of launching and failing and learning and synthesizing new knowledge and starting again uh, the, the process, the confidence, the experience, even the scars, all those things significantly improve sort of your business skills as you go forward. So 
I think it's important not that you not that you believe it necessarily has to succeed, but I think it's important to go out there and get the experience. So starting something, trying something, not only teaches you the process of doing that and teaches you how you know, but failure teaches you how to learn. Uh, right. So yes, I, I think it's 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 a great that more and more that we have a culture now that encourages more and more younger people and students to go ahead and try something. In fact, the worst thing in life is not failing. The worst thing in life is never trying. That's absolutely true. Uh, but you've had a lot of successes yourself. Um, I know you've probably had some things that didn't work out so well, um, but you've had an awful lot of successes. And so many different entrepreneurs are flooded with ideas constantly. In fact, most entrepreneurs, you know, their mind's constantly generating ideas. But one of the things that I always struggle with personally, and I also hear from my entrepreneurial friends, is that how do you evaluate all these ideas and decide which ones you're actually going to put the energy and the resources behind? Um, to, you know, which ones do you act on? Do you have a process for evaluating those? Uh, <laughs> yes, I almost feel like that question was in perfect setup because uh, it's funny you say that. On Friday, I spoke, this past Friday, I spoke at a TED conference. Mm-hmm. That was actually the first ever TED conference on Wall Street, and that was exactly my topic. Uh, was the fact that in a, you know in a in a world where ideas are flowing in an innovation process, you want ideas to keep flowing, but you've got to have some kind of metric for filtering them. So we have always what I've always done is literally, and I mean with a piece you know a whiteboard or a sheet of paper, I've always designed a filter uh, that I can assess ideas and literally try to give them a score between zero and a hundred. And the filter has things like, do I even know anything about this? Um, you know, can I actually contribute value? For example, a healthcare idea might seem kind of cool, but I don't know anything about the healthcare business. So I'm giving you an example of, of some of the things that go in the filter. But the answer is yes. You you build the filter and you write it up and you really use it to assess ideas. So, do you have anything that you can uniquely contribute to it? Do you have assets? For example, if it's an industry, when I do an airline thing, I know everybody in the travel industry, so that gets 10 points for me because I can contribute relationships. Mm-hmm. Do I have experience? Do I have relationships? Do I have domain knowledge? Do I have the ability to hire the kind of talent? Do I know the people I would need to build this thing? Um, then you look at things like the cost of the idea, the you know the, uh, the, the, the length of launching the idea, how that fits in your uh, – uh, in your funnel. So, yeah, there there is a process by which you develop a score sheet that you should run every idea through that filter, and if it doesn't score over whatever your, your, your number is, anything in the 90s I should look at, something that gets 20 on my measuring system, why am I even – it seems like a cool idea, but it's not for me. Sure. And very, very good um, points there. Recently I was able to interview Scott Case, who, you know, he's the CEO of Startup America Partnership, and he talked about the entrepreneur ecosystem. And I just want to hear from you what your ideas are for improving the entrepreneur ecosystem. First of all, you know, what does it mean to you? What 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 does that term mean to you? And then then what uh, ideas do you have for improving that? Sure, and obviously Scott and I worked together at the early Priceline days when it was a small group of people and uh he was in a very innovative piece of all that, so we have some of the very similar philosophies. But I'll tell you what, lately I have been doing a lot more global work in entrepreneurship ecosystems from Asia to Africa to Europe to coming up South America next. So I've been looking at this on a very global scale, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to tell you sort of my conclusion for that, which is the ecosystem seems to me to now consist of three pieces. Uh, I mean, especially more so, you know, this this model would not apply to Silicon Valley because it's so far advanced. But for most of the world, there's three pieces, and and here's what I think they are. 
um, inspiration, education, and infrastructure. And let me explain the three of those. Inspiration is important because a lot of people don't even know. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. I was invited to a career day at a high school recently, and I said, well, I don't really have a, quote, career. Your career day is doctors and nurses and policemen. And they said, it's been that way since I was a kid. And they said, right, you'd be the first person we've ever invited to career day whose career description is entrepreneur. So the fact that at the high school said, we actually recognize that that may be a career choice, right? Because I used to laugh. My friends used to say, why are you so unstable? Why can't you decide what you want to do? (laughs) And I would say, I want to do all these things, Uh right? And so I'm not judging you that you only want to do one thing your whole life, but I want to do ten. And so it used to make me unstable. Now there's a word for it, entrepreneur. (laughs) Um, uh, But anyway, inspiration is that first piece which explained to people that entrepreneurship is a viable option, that 80% of all new job creation comes from small businesses and entrepreneurs, that it is a legitimate way to create value in the world. So that's the inspiration piece. The People need to be telling, like we're going to be doing at Johnson County, telling these young folks that entrepreneurship is a real career path to follow, and it's okay to go that way. The second part is the education piece which is giving them all the tools, whether it's entrepreneurship programs at universities or in communities. It's all the tools they need to to learn how to be an entrepreneur and how to launch a company and how to create that value. And the third piece is infrastructure, which I have to admit uh, applies mostly to money. Um, we've got to find more ways in more communities to make access to capital for an entrepreneur uh, uh, an easier uh, hurdle to, to, you know, to overcome because – we all know that, you know, unfortunately, in tougher economic times, the only people that can get their hands on money would be people that don't need it. Absolutely. We've got to, we've got to find ways to get to get funding into their hands as well. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things play out with the new Jobs Act that uh, uh, we're going to be seeing here before yes. long. That'll, that'll maybe make a big difference. We'll see. Um, one last question. I actually have several more I could ask you, but in the interest of time, um, one more, and then people are just going to have to come out and see you um, on <laughs> Wednesday at, at the community center, or at the Johnson County Community uh, College, excuse me. You spent five years in the entertainment business, and it's, I'm just very curious to know, um, after being an Internet entrepreneur for so many years, being involved in all those ventures, why did you take that kind of a detour? Or do you even consider that a detour? Knowing you, there's probably some connection. Ah, uh, Funny you should say that, because all of my friends thought it was an insane detour. Uh, (laughs) People said to me, uh, you don't know anything about this. One of the first things they did was make an independent film. And people said, you don't know anything about making movies. And it's interesting, to me, they saw that as a problem. Going into an industry I knew nothing about was a problem. To me, I saw it as an opportunity. What I was thinking was, Imagine if every day when you got up, you had to learn something new, because I had to learn a whole new industry to keep up. So I took it as an opportunity to expand my horizons. Other people took it as you're wandering into a place you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right in that I saw a very common thing. First of all, part of the reason I went there is because I love the creative thought process, watching people create. And that's why I went into the entertainment business, to be around creative people. But what I noticed is whether you were in the studio producing and writing a new song or you were in the lab Right, you know, designing and building a new website uh, or whatever it is that you do, the core disciplines that it takes to launch a business are the same. Who is your market? Who you, who's going to listen to this song? Right? How are you going to distribute it? That's what I do with my product. I, is this a radio song, an Internet song? How am I going to get it out there? How am I going to market it? Who am I marketing it to? I, I need money. It costs money to produce a film or a song just like it costs money to produce a new company. So many of the core disciplines turned out to be the same, and my, my going-in hypothesis was 
if you're a good entrepreneur with with solid blocking, tackling, and discipline, you should be able to you know create an entertainment product using the same methodologies you would to launch a new company. And luckily for us, we were actually uh, successful in doing so. Yes, and in some ways you really came full circle because when you started out there at Yale, you, as you said, you knew nothing about the software industry, but you learned, you figured it out, and uh, if you have those basic uh, blocking and tackling uh, skills, as you said, you can make it work. Uh, so, Jeff, it has been a pleasure talking with you today. If somebody, other than coming out to see you, which obviously wants them to go out to ithinkbigger.com and register for the event that's coming up on April the 18th, but uh, where can they find more information about you? Websites? Yeah, I website? actually also have a, there's a jeffhoffman.com. Uh, I actually okay. have a, yeah, there's there's two places, colorjar.com on our okay. Color Jar website, and there's also a speaking site that I have called jeffhoffman.com. Okay, well, it has been wonderful talking with you today. Uh, we'll see you here in just a few days uh, live. And, and like I said, all you listeners, make sure you go out to ithinkbigger.com and register. There are no physical tickets issued, but you do need to register. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in person, Jeff. Thank you very much. Well, and again, if you are interested, if you're in the Kansas City area, if you want to fly to the Kansas City area, because Jeff and Heather are going to be great speakers next week, go out to ithinkbigger.com, get registered for that. And Jeff was very good about sharing so much insight with us today. But if you want to find out more about Jeff, you can go out to jeffhoffman.com or you can go out to colorjar.com. Now, our next guest today is none other than Heather Lutz. She's the author of Thumbonomics. Uh, the Essential Business Roadmap for Social Media and Mobile Marketing. She will also be here in Kansas City next week. She's going to be here for two days. On Friday, uh, April the 20th, she will be presenting at a luncheon event for us out at the Sheraton in Overland Park part of the Thinking Bigger Speaker Series. And so come on out with us uh, for $55. You get a copy of her book, you get uh, the lunch, and you also have the opportunity to hear Heather speak about the principles in Thumbonomics and another book that she's written called Findability. So we encourage you to do that. Um, a little bit about Heather before we bring her on the show. First of all, she is a widely acclaimed speaker. Uh, she's a trainer. She's a consultant. As I mentioned, she has two books. Her first one was The Findability Formula, and the subtitle for that is, it makes me laugh a little bit, The Easy Non-Technical Approach to Search Engine Marketing, and I laugh because I absolutely need that non-technical approach. And then the, her brand-new book is Thumbonomics, The Essential Business Roadmap for Social Media and Mobile Marketing. What's really nice about Heather is that she's witty and she's no geek speak. So don't turn off the radio. Don't worry if you don't think that you understand some of these things because she speaks about this in language that you will understand. She demystifies Internet market and from this interview and from coming out to hear her next week on Friday and then on Saturday she's doing a workshop for the National Speakers Association here in Kansas City. But she's going to provide tactics that you can put to work immediately so that you can start getting real business results from those social networks that we hear so much about, maybe that you spend so much time on and aren't getting results from. She's going to talk to us about how to change that. Um, she shares the stage with Tony Robbins as he goes around the world uh, with his business mastery group. Uh, she's a member, as I mentioned, of the National Speakers Association. She's a sought-after Vistage International speaker. And she spent three years training advertisers in paid search techniques for Yahoo search marketing. She's also appeared on Oprah. 
and she founded the Findability Group in 2000 in response to all the frustrated website owners who had paid good money for beautiful high-tech websites that weren't bringing in business. How many of us are guilty of doing that same thing? And as CEO of Findability Group, she leads a dedicated and slightly obsessed team of 15 search marketing pros whose mission is to help companies connect with their ideal customers online. And so today now, we welcome Heather Lutz. Welcome to the show today, Heather. We're very excited to have you here and get a sneak preview of what you're going to be talking about next Friday and Saturday when you're in Kansas City. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, okay, so findability and thumbonomics. I have been reading all about that. I have your thumbonomics book in my hand right now. Uh can't wait to dive into it. What I'd like to know right now is, you know, you tell people that using the findability formula that they can dominate the search engines and you mm-hmm. you can even achieve those first page, the coveted, you know, first page rankings in the search results. And I'm just really curious that with all the uh, hundreds of thousands of matches that some of these searches generate, how can a small company really achieve that? Mm. Yeah, I, what I've done is I've really made a career out of sort of deconstructing the frustrations around business owners and their misunderstanding in a very technical world. I mean, most business owners are not technically savvy. They know how to run a business. They're right. not web programmers. They're not marketing gurus. They're not Internet marketing wizards. You know, they have no idea on how to really leverage for greater exposure on the Internet. So, Right, much less be able to penetrate the algorithms that Google uses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I always tell clients, I mean, I worked for Yahoo. I've been doing this 10 years. I've spoken to thousands of people all over the world. I just got back from Australia speaking at a Tony Robbins event to business owners. And you know what? The universal, The universal sort of reply that all these people tell me is that just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me exactly how to set a roadmap up for success and then help me understand how to control the people I hire to get the results that the business needs. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the, the genesis for Findability Formula and for Thumbonomics is about coaching in a no-geek-speak format, coaching right. business owners how to achieve the results that help pay the bills. Mm-hmm. It's not about whatever ego shows up when you see yourself on a Google search result page. And I think right. that's the biggest saboteur for business owners, honestly, is ego. Um, really? It, it, yeah. Explain that a little bit. Well, we, as business owners, become very fixated on specific keyword phrases that we feel like we should dominate. A um, great example of this is I've done a bunch of work for Pirelli Natural Horsemanship. He's the guy who Robert Redford played in The Horse Whisperer. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, yes. Well, he's yeah. a real guy. Uh, okay. He's my client, and he uh, lives up in Pocosa Springs, has a multi-million dollar operation up there. And they are absolutely fixated on the word natural horsemanship. <laughs> fixated. Like that was the only word they cared about. No one searched anything else to, get to find them on the Internet. And when we started working with them, uh, you know, natural horsemanship got about 22,000 searches a month. Sure. Uh, you know, not enough to sustain a multi-million dollar business. No way. And then we started looking at the tools that I mentioned um, in the books, uh, we found out that things like horse problems, horse biting, horse kicking, horse won't trailer, uh, you know, all these problem keywords, people ask Google, how do I get my horse to stop biting? Mm-hmm. And, and so we architected a website around people's problems and pain, not necessarily mm-hmm. the way Pat and Linda saw themselves, which was natural horsemanship. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. 
Uh, well, natural horsemanship, is, it's just not a, a top-of-mind kind of thing that you'd go to search about. But just like with right. sales training, uh-huh. I mean, you hear over and over in sales training, find your mm-hmm. customer's pain point. That's and right. So it, it's, it's a little overused, to be honest. But right. it, it, it's but still it relevant. Works. Yeah, it's yeah, relevant, exactly. actually. And the pain yeah. just has transferred from maybe you used to maybe flip through magazines or the yellow pages, and now it's moved on to a very specific search engagement you know, they have specific pain around a CMS system or uh, attracting good quality leads or hiring good salespeople, whatever that shows up for them. They're going to put specifically into Google what they need from Google. Okay, and, so, the, yeah. go ahead. So, the and, first, yeah. so the first thing they need to do as a business owner mm-hmm. is get their heads around what it is that the client might be searching on to find them as opposed to how they define themselves as a company. Exactly. Okay, and once they have a handle on what those words are, um, what's the next step? What What would you recommend after that? Sure, and, and I think one little caveat to add to that would be understanding you've got a certain amount of people who already know who you are, mm-hmm. and they already love you and know you and buy from you. What about the people who don't know you but should? They've got problems, issues, concerns. You can help them. So really find ability strategy and, and understanding those keyword phrases helps you connect with a searching audience that does not know your business exists but should. Okay. So that's sort of an, a research project in keyword research. Uh, and that would be step one. Mm-hmm. And then step two is going back once you've kind of acquired these 10, 20 keyword phrases. And when I say keyword phrases, I really want to define that because it's a lot of confusion around that. Um, so horses is a keyword, one keyword. Horse training is two keywords. Uh, horse training habits or problems is three keywords. So a keyword could be one, two, three, four, twenty-five keyword phrases in length. Okay. What we know, yeah. What we know from our research is that four keywords is the magic number where people four? take four. Mm-hmm. That's it, where there's a forty percent increase at four keywords that they're going to take action on your website. Hmm. A forty percent probability that they will take action on the site. Not just look around and leave, but actually do something on the site. That's interesting. Do you have yeah. any re- any idea why that's true? I think it's because I like to think of a keyword phrase sort of like a, a, a warm call. So the longer the keyword phrase, the warmer the call or the sales call is. So okay. on Internet terms, that would be like a warm click. Do they hmm. come to look around and leave because they're not ready to buy? Or when they get to your site, they are already they've already pre-qualified them through themselves through the keyword they put in Google, and now they're just coming there to figure out how to contact you or how to get additional information because they're going to make a decision in the imminent future. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So so you've decided on the keywords. You yep. know what your optimum number of keywords are, is, yep. and uh, what, what happens next? Well, the next pass would be to definitely look at the assets you currently have. Look at your website. Look at your social media profiles and see – Am I just talking about myself on all of this? Am I using phrases that I am in love with? Those are those ego keywords. Mm -hmm. Or am I really speaking the language of the people who need my help? So the original intention for Google was, well, originally the intention for the Internet was to connect educational institutions together so they could change and exchange information. Right. Google was founded by two Stanford students to connect doctoral theses and professorship work cross laterally because it wasn't in the library. You couldn't have, you had no way of accessing it, and they wanted to create, uh, you know, a way to access that information. And, and and even though we all talk about the algorithm, the next 
the, the biggest thing we need to understand is that Google is still just indexing term papers. Well, and, that's, yeah. that's true. It's a big index. A it's a fantastic index. index, yeah, of the best term papers in the world. And, you know, in order to be top ten, you've got to write a really good term paper on that topic. So I always tell clients is go back and look at your website like a term paper. The home page is your opening introductory paragraph to what your company does. That's the first chapter of your term paper. And that's one keyword phrase that that introductory chapter is focused on. And for Pirelli, it was horse training. Mm -hmm. And then all of your internal chapters are the navigation that goes across the top. How are you going to prove to me a non-thinking, non-emotional robot like Google, or any search engine for that matter, doesn't really, there's no emotionality there. It's just looking at the keyword and the content, who's the best professor to be listed in the top ten search results. Wow. So you've got to go back and kind of come up, and I, I walk you through this in the book, so it's right. really difficult to explain this on a radio interview, but sure, I walk you through how to apply the keyword research you've just done in step one, and then in step two, how to t go back, look at your assets you have online, and apply those keywords strategically in a hierarchical manner. So Google can recognize you for the professor and expert you are in your industry because you're using keyword phrases that people are already searching for help. Right. And, and Heather's absolutely right. The book is chock full of how to do this. And obviously, uh, if you want to meet Heather and ask specific questions next week uh, when she's here on, on Friday and Saturday, April, uh, in, in April 25th and 26th, excuse me, 20th and 21st, then you'll have a chance to ask her specific questions about it. You'll also get a copy of the book. But um, for now, uh, I want to move on a little bit, Heather. And, you know, at one point many years ago, you, you heard from marketers all over the place, you know, it's not good enough to have a brochure. You've got to have a website. If you're a serious business owner, you have to have that web presence. But mm -hmm. now I'm hearing, and one of your main messages is, is that now having a website's not good enough. Mm -hmm. So so what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, the problem is, is that, you know, we have trained our consumer market over the last 10 years. I've been building websites and running my agency for 10 years. So I've seen a few websites, mm -hmm. you know, and most websites look like about us, testimonials, contact us, <laughs> or services, and then contact us, right? About right, our mission. <laughs> yeah, our mission statement, right? And so what's happened is that people are not going to say they're terrible on their website. I mean, when's right. the last time you read a testimonial that was really not so flattering that someone had on their website, right? It doesn't happen, right? right? Right. And so Google, as well as your marketing, as well as your audience out there, knows that they go to your website, you're going to say glowing things about yourself. Always. Right? It's not really a, a, a socially or a scientific um, you know, uh, probability that that's going to be uh, not to be favorable right, for you. It's always going to be favorable because you wrote it. And Google has sort of changed their focus on what do other people think about your company, not what you think. What do other people think? What experiences have they had? This is, this is causing rise to sites like um, Angie's List, sites mm -hmm. like Yelp and Urban Spoon, and, right. and even Google Reviews and Google Local. You know, people go in there and express their specific opinion about your company. And that is really what Google is now looking to in social media. They want social proof that you are as good as you say you are on your website. Mm. You need both. Not only do you state that you're an expert, that's great, but Google is now what's called social signals. And there was a study released not too long ago by Matt Cutts, C-U-T-T-S. He's, kind of he's the guy who runs the spam team at Google. He's a very okay. important man at Google. Um, 
And he talks about the fact that, you know what, we just can't trust websites anymore because everyone says they're fantastic. And so we've had to open up our, our sort of relevancy of, of professorship or of, of authority to what other people say. So if you're a professor, of course you're going to be engaging in Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and blogging because a good professor would to stay relevant and current in their space. Right. So Google right. is now expanding that and saying, we're looking at Facebook. You have to look at Facebook like a search engine. You've got to look at Twitter like a search engine. YouTube is the number two search engine right underneath Google. I just saw that. In recent yeah. weeks, I was amazed. That yeah, because people that, love to watch videos. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you rather watch a video than read content any day of the week for me? Yeah, and, any and day. So, so many of them are dished up through Facebook too. I, I yeah. see oh, that's yeah. probably where I see most of my <laughs> or, you know, get most of my video leads is when I'm yeah. looking through my feed and, and news feed in Facebook and oh yeah, I want to see that video. Well then an hour later you're watching a a video about kittens and you're like, What happened? you know, I was so focused <laughs> Right? And then a half hour later you're like why am I watching this? This is fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, you talk about this moment of revela revelation that you had sitting yes. in the Denver airport. You're yes. looking around. You're seeing all these people passing the time to catch their flight, and all they're doing is their thumbs are just busily at work. Oh, yeah. And, and tell us about that little <laughs> aha moment. Well, I do an extensive amount of travel. I'm a very proud a gold level with United and a premier exec. <laughs> with Marriott, a platinum with Marriott, and so I've got all the credentials, right? But um, I was, I spent a lot of time in airports, and I'm like, you know, there is a lot of people traveling during the week, and looking around, I have this guy sitting next to me. He has an iPad on his lap. He's got an iPhone and a BlackBerry, and he's working all of them pretty much at the same time. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful thing. It really was. And I'm like, look, then I start to look around, and I'm like, everyone is completely fixated on what I call the other computer, and the other computer is their smartphone, their iPad, um, you know, whatever device, their tablet, is, is, is where they're doing business. And that's, that's a huge shift for business owners to think that people are not engaging them with them necessarily through a desktop environment at their office. It's on the road, in the moment, when they want it, when they think about it. They're not tabling it to when they get back to the office. They're doing right. it now. Right. Yeah. And the business that actually gets done through that, I mean, it, it, I, I totally get your your title of your second book now, Thumbonomics, yes. the business and the, the, the money, uh, money in quotation marks, that is exchanged, the commerce that is done through uh, the thumbs, you know, it's, just it's online mobile phone. devices. Yeah, yeah, you can pay your bills online. You can order things. You oh, can, yeah. You, you can send files. I mean, it, you can do everything on them now. Well, now they're so, talking about even being able to pay any bill, like through Visa, mm -hmm. using your iPhone. Sure, yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard of that too. And then, you mm -hmm. know, you can be at trade shows, and I don't remember, it's that little square thing that you can yeah, put on square now. And you can, square, yeah, and you can actually accept payments right there at your Right, and you sign with your finger. You sign with your finger. I love yeah. it. Very cool. Yeah. So you talk about creating um, a variety of pathways so that your customers can find you in the ways that they prefer. What, what right. do you mean by that? Well, I think it's really easy as business owners to sort of say that Twitter is ridiculous. Right? Why would anyone ever want to know in 140 characters what I'm doing throughout my day? <laughs> or you stand in judgment of, you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to be one of those. Um, I'm going to not engage in Facebook, or uh, I, I never go to YouTube, or blogging is a ridiculous waste of time, and I'm tired of people talking about it. I think it's really easy to, as a business owner just to shut down because mm -hmm. you get overwhelmed really quickly. You really and, do. Yeah. yeah, and it's really easy to say, I'm just not going to engage. I'm going to stick with my website. I'm going to go with what's worked for the last 20 years, <laughs> and I'm just going to stick with that. 
And, and quite frankly, it's kind of an adapt or die sort of of what's happening with the economy the way it's been. It's cleared out a lot of dead weight. If you've managed to survive through this last two years, you have a really solid and viable business model. And I think there's no business owner on the face of the planet who doesn't think about what happens after they sell it, after they pass it on to a family member. I mean, the business has a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And really, as business owners, we need to be protective, protective of what we've built. And in that vein, we've got to engage in these social media portals like Twitter and YouTube because that's the next, that's the next revision, if you will, of marketing. That used to be print, used to be radio, maybe it was even email. And those, things, those mediums still exist, but they aren't as successful as they used to be. And social media ROI and getting people to really become your friend, your follower, your subscriber, that's where the real next generation of marketing and what Summonomics is all about is connecting there and wooing them throughout your engagement until they're ready to buy, giving them little tickles of information and case studies and stories and and anything that you stay connected with them over time so that when they need that, they have that pain or they need that service or product, they immediately think of you. I call you're the top-of-mind expert for them because you've connected with them in little tiny pieces since you became friends or followers. Well, and that leads me to my next question. Actually, it's kind of a, a two questions merged into one. Mm-hmm. One is, given all of those different types of social media, those are the big five, the ones mm-hmm. that you mentioned, yeah. given all of those, does first, does a business owner need to be actively involved with every single one of them? Mm-hmm. And the other piece is, you mentioned that ROI and you mentioned the time. Um, what what can a business owner do who has limited time, who has limited people resources in many cases? Right. Um, what can they do to maximize? Oh, I hate that word, but maximize yeah, yeah. their yeah. Um, their presence on those those uh, social media platforms without spending their whole day on it yeah, and getting results to boot. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the book, you know, we really we have chapter four talks about the rules of engagement. So. We lay out, as a business owner, what do you need to make to do to protect yourself, not only from, from your employees, but whatever's being said about you on Facebook. You need to be connected with that conversation because people are talking about your company whether you know it or not. Do you want to know or do you want to have your head in the sand? So that's the right. first question you've got to ask. If you're ready to engage and really hear what people think, not just the good things, but the good, the bad, and the ugly because they show up on social media. But I guess for me as a business owner, I've been in business 10 years, I've got 12 employees, you can't make everyone happy all the time. There are going to be customers who are unhappy. How you deal with that and how you show up in integrity will eventually show up in social media. But you knowing first and foremost and having a plan of attack to protect your company is the most important thing. And then, so, and then after that, focusing on hiring someone internally. And I have something called... Uh, Chapter 15 is your social media program, outsource or in-house. So I walk you through the scenarios between outsourcing to a company and what you should know versus in-house and how they should be trained up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, no, absolutely, the business owner should not be managing social media. No way. That's not a good use of their time. Their job is to execute a program and then check in on it and have the, the proper checks and balances and approvals as, as that is being set up. And then certain important milestones are checked back with the boss. Okay. So because you hear a lot of well you hear you yeah. hear a lot of chatter about uh you know the and and it's very heated. In fact, I just saw some of it today mm-hmm. where 
somebody posted about, oh, I just got my social media intern for the summer, and right. then somebody else comes in, and then you know other people uh, pile on. Oh, big mistake, big mistake. You cannot just pull some kid out of college looking for summer work in and say, do my social media, because it's more than just the technical aspect of knowing how to, you know. Uh, Post. You have to know the company. You have to know the culture. You have to, you know, it's, you have to know your products, and you know, you have to know your customers because this is a relationship. Would you send that um, intern out on your sales calls with no training to say, "Hey, go not. do it," you know? And so, yeah. so as you say, it has to. The, the business owner may not be doing the social media, but you have yeah. to have those checks and balances, and you have to have the sign-offs and right. the whole process that you outline. Yeah, you have a social media corporate policy that everyone signs, just like sexual harassment, just like bullying the workplace. They sign it, goes into their HR document. You've, mm-hmm. you've had a social media meeting. You sat everyone down. You've talked about the expectations of what you expect from them when they're on social media. They're on your dime. Therefore, they should be talking about and reaching out to people that are going to extend their own job, Okay, right. whether it be through getting content about how to do their job better, reaching out to other people who do similar jobs, whatever, but you are on their dollar and you will abide by their rules, or that's grounds for termination. Mm-hmm. Set, the, set the rules up so everyone understands, everyone can ask the questions. Then you have one person who is your social media. I like the intern idea. We hire all of our employees by internship to hire. Mm-hmm. And I like that because you get a chance to really um, train them up from scratch exactly how you want spoken about the company. You have them read findability formulas and to understand keyword-driven activity, and how to to make sure that those social media profiles are going to really end up in real ROI for the business. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people just let them loose. If you hire right. a teenager and let them loose on Facebook, that is not going to go well. Right. If you set up the rules of engagement, you set up the structure and the expectations and the approval process, then that's going to go very well because there's a very, very specific list of things they need to do, and you're checking along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, mobile marketing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Sure. Some people say, kind of dismiss it, as you were talking about before, uh, mobile marketing, it's just for retailers, just for restaurants, somebody who has coupons that they can they can uh, send out through their uh, to the smartphones. True? Not true? How do you weigh in on that for us? You know, I sort of think it's a limiting belief by business owners to not have to engage in that new marketing medium. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm just going to keep telling myself, I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. It'll be all right, right? It's just this limiting belief that they don't need to be entering into this mobile marketing community. And I think it's it's maybe three or four years ago, I think a statement that you just made would have been true, um, but now absolutely not. A smartphone is another computer, like I said earlier. They are pulling up everything, not just restaurants and not just uh, you know local reviews for nightclubs. They are pulling everything. Um, and they're researching on the fly in the moment when they have that problem. Uh, and, 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 you know, having a mobile site as part of your initiative is absolutely essential. And if it's right. not part of your plans for 2012, it should be. Yeah. You know, Heather, the time has just flown. We, we've um, been talking here for about 20 minutes. Of course, you're going to be here in Kansas City next Friday and Saturday, April 20th and 21st, to be talking about Thumbonomics. Yes. And anybody who comes to the luncheon on Friday, a copy of the book is included. Um, but for some of the people, this is a show that's national in scope. So for people who may not make it to Kansas City or even some local folks who are listening in today that may not make it, where can they get a copy of your book? Great, great. So what I'm going to do is I'm extend this. This. So I, I would love to, to build my community. And so what I'm going to offer is the free four-hour audio book. It's me reading the book front to back. 
Um, if you go to facebook.com slash marketing speaker, uh, like my page, at the very top you'll see a little box that says free ebook. I'm going to give you that four-hour ebook as my gift for listening to the show today. Wow. And then if you want to buy the book, you like to touchy-feely, um, you can go ahead and go to Amazon, just put in Thumbonomics or Findability or Heather Lutze, and you're going to find it very easily. Well, that's wonderful, Heather. A lot of great information on the show today, some very practical things that I think folks can get started with, or at least get to thinking about this in a different manner just based on the conversation today. Obviously, if they come out to uh, the the workshop on uh, the luncheon workshop next Friday and Saturday, they'll learn even more, and you can register for that by going out to ithinkbigger.com and just follow the uh, button there on the front page and get you right to Heather's uh, sign-up uh page. So we hope to see you out there. Heather, thank you so much. Looking forward to meeting you next week and uh, lots to learn for all of us. Thank you for having me. It's been a great, great time. Well, we've learned a lot today with Jeff Hoffman, the co-founder of Priceline.com as our first guest, and then with Heather Lutz of Thumbonomics. You can contact both of them through their websites, jeffhoffman.com or colorjar.com, to reach Jeff. And then Heather Lutz, you can get um, information about Heather at findability.com. And, of course, if you're in the Kansas City area, we keep saying this, but we would love to have you come out and join us for the two speaker series events that we're hosting on Wednesday, April the 18th, with Jeff Hoffman, and then on Friday, April the 20th, we're going to be featuring Heather at our luncheon that day. You'll get a book, you'll get the lunch, and then you'll also be able to hear her presentation. The following day, if you want to do the package that we have out on our website, the following day, she will be presenting a workshop on Saturday, April the 21st, with the National Speakers Association chapter here in Kansas City. So you can take advantage of both of those days or one or the other. Go out to the website, ithinkbigger.com, sign up to hear Jeff Hoffman, sign up to hear Heather Lutz, choose the package option that you want. We'd love to have you come out. Meet these people in person. You're going to learn a lot. If you thought you learned some things today, you're going to learn even more with them in person. Plus, these are great networking opportunities. Our events always draw business owners from all over the city, and it's a great opportunity for you to mingle with other business owners who are trying to grow their companies. And we always hear back that people made new connections, that they learned from each other, and that they, in the meantime, grew their businesses too. We want to thank you for for tuning in today to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. We have more great guests in store for you. Next week we're going to be interviewing Kay uh, Saunders with Bellwether, and she has a brand-new book out. It's going to help you understand how to deal with the five generations in the workplace and a lot of other human relations types of issues that you face in your business. So tune in next week at 11 o'clock on Friday, and we'll be bringing you Kay Saunders of Bellwether. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.